Okay, everybody, welcome. It is really good to see you all this evening. Welcome to All Saints. It's um, a particular pleasure to welcome a few newcomers and people here for the first time. Uh, I think I explained to at least to uh, one of the two or three groups of you that um, this is a somewhat unusual time for you just to be showing up at All Saints because we are in session two of a three-part mini-series on Wednesday night uh, Bible study on the subject of uh, qualifications for the ministry of the deacon, the diaconal ministry, uh, for reasons which I'll explain in a few minutes' time. Uh, You've also come at a strange time because quite a lot of the people who would normally be here are away at summer camp, so there's a huge empty demographic space in the mid-teenager bracket this evening. Um, But uh, we're delighted to have you with us, and no less delighted to have um, those of you guys who are at home, Um, and all of you who are here. Uh, Those of you who are at home, you should have in your email inboxes, which I sent around about quarter to five this evening, a PDF copy of this document, which is headed A Vision for Deacons 2, subtitled Character and Qualifications. There are three pages on that handout, and it will be very helpful if you uh, have that handy, because uh, you'll be needing it. Those of you who are here... Uh, we'll also need it, and if you can have a pen, and I've been getting these young men to dish the pens out, thanks guys for doing that. This evening, I'm actually going to be getting you to work quite hard, like I don't normally, um, on the kinds of serious self-interrogation that I think it's really valuable for all of us to do. Um, but all of us to do irrespective of whether we're aspiring to diaconal ministry. And again, I'll say something more about that in a moment. But before we go any further, probably, I sh- let's le- let me lead us in prayer. Um, and then uh, we can just jump in with a brief recap of last week, and then we'll just move on and see where the Lord leads us this evening. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the privilege of being united with our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit, through faith, and so being united to one another as members of his body. We confess that which we sometimes forget, that being so united to Jesus entails being united to those other members of the body, some of whom we're now surrounded by as we sit here among our brothers and sisters in Christ here at All Saints, or who have been gathered here from elsewhere. And so we thank you for the church, and we thank you for the officers of the church whom all of us have benefited from in many different ways over the years as we come to consider this evening for the second time in as many weeks the details of the qualifications for diaconal office in the church we ask that this will again be a fruitful time for us uh, for all of us a time of uh, reflection and sober uh, self-interrogation as we take seriously the possibility that for at least some of us we may be called to serve in this way and may therefore need to get ready for it. And for all of us, that there are models here of Christian godliness to which it would do us a great deal of good to aspire. So bless and enrich us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay, so first part of this evening, I'm going to be going through the first side of this three-page handout. Okay. I hope this doesn't take too much time. I know sometimes things that look like they might take a while take a great while, but we're going to try and get through it quite quickly. So let me begin with a brief recap 
about the context first for this series of studies. We have been growing wonderfully at All Saints. We have all of the right kind of problems. Uh, Before we were able to sit down here this evening, I spent about 20 minutes this afternoon removing three quarters of the hundred or so chairs, two thirds of the hundred or so chairs to the sides of the room and to the rack over there so that they're more than 100 or so, probably 130, 140 chairs, so that we could put these tables out. And they were set up like that because we've overflowed from the sanctuary. When the sanctuary's full with 270 people, we've still got 100 people down here worshipping with us on the Lord's Day. Uh, this is not a problem that many churches have the privilege of wrestling with. And right now, uh, we're growing, by God's grace, at a rate of something like 20% a year, which is just off the charts, spectacular and wonderful and slightly frightening. And we've explored some of the reasons for that in uh, recent weeks. But it presents us with tremendous opportunities. There are literally millions of people living within 10 or 20 miles of this spot who are going to hell without Jesus Christ and don't know the Bible's got two testaments. And tragically, um, many, not all, but many of the churches that are near them are not doing a great job of so presenting Christ that they're likely to be drawn to him in repentance and faith. And so the responsibility of churches that God has blessed as we have been blessed is to reach out to those people. I would love to see, by God's grace, many church plants from here across the whole DFW area in the coming 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however long the Lord gives me, and beyond that. But we have precisely four deacons right now, which is not enough. It just isn't enough. And so last week we talked about um, some of the qualifications. Before we get to that, a word or two about the goals of this series of studies. The obvious one is that future diaconal candidates and, of course, their wives would have some sense of what they should be striving towards so that when somebody taps them on the shoulder and asks if they might nominate them later this year or next year or the year after, they're not completely taken by surprise by the prospect. But secondly, all of us are involved in the selection process of deacons and you don't just vote for your friends or your mates or he's a good chap or he's been around a while. We need to know what it is that a deacon is required to do. And as we saw in Acts 6, the apostles delegated to the congregation the responsibility of selecting men from among you on the assumption that the congregations knew who were the men filled with the spirit and wisdom who would be qualified for that ministry and were able to assess them appropriately. And then third, of course, it turns out that the qualifications for diaconal ministry are a kind of on steroids version of the sort of Christian character and godliness and maturity that we all ought to be striving towards, some version of, whether we're men or women. And so I hope this really will be a kind of uh, bucket of iced water experience for all of us to think, wow, I, I really should be seeking to be very purposeful about my growth in Christian maturity. So those are the goals. I would love for all of us to be encouraged greater and more purposeful growth in Christ. And if at the end of this year or beginning of next year, as and when we open deacon nominations, we get four, five, six great candidates proposed, I'll be thrilled by that, along with a whole bunch of other guys waiting in the wings just 
to get the right age or a bit more experience or whatever it is. Then last week we looked at Act 6, which, as I uh, reminded you, is not really the birth of the New Testament office of deacon. The, the office of deacon has roots before Act 6, back in the Old Testament, in the Levitical ministry of uh, the Levites, but it also really kind of formally gets inaugurated sometime later in the New Testament period. But nonetheless, there are hints there of people doing certain things which map onto some of the responsibilities of diaconal ministry. And just to remind you what happens, you've got this complex situation in Acts chapter 6 where there's a vitally important issue that needs to be fixed. There's a famine in Jerusalem. There are a series of famines in Jerusalem in the first century. And there was a dispute between the Grecian and Hebraic widows about the distribution of food where some of the the Hellenistic or or Greek-speaking widows felt they were being overlooked. And so it's a problem of a very serious magnitude, an administrative problem. Women could starve to death if they're not fed appropriately. But it's also a problem that requires tact and diplomacy and wisdom because there's potential, of course, for tension between these two sub-communities within the church. And the apostles felt the danger of distraction from the ministry of the word and prayer. And so they asked the congregation to appoint seven men filled with the spirit of wisdom uh, and wisdom, sorry, um, able to oversee the distribution of food and to resolve this conflict. And it's one of a number of moments in the book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts has these um, crisis response and, and growth cycles. There's a crisis that erupts, the church responds to it, and by the grace of the Spirit of God, figures out what to do, and then you get a kind of statement, like in chapter 6, verse 7, the church continued to grow, and many more priests became Christians, or whatever it was, right? So this is another great thing that the church did to deal with the kinds of problems that we get all the time. Okay, and then finally, just a brief note on some of the implications we chatted about last week, third bullet point under recap, This is a demanding and time-consuming ministry. I don't know how many hours our deacons spend uh, on a regular basis serving you and me. But it's not like one or two. Uh, It is somebody is here way after the time when you and often I have gone, making sure the building is secure and locked up. And somebody is here for the men's discipleship breakfast, taking responsibility to make sure that we've all got those whatever it is we're eating. There are many other things to do with finance and many other things to do with actual personal discipleship issues, helping people to handle the practicalities of their own financial planning and other things where we just need the expertise of wise, godly, spirit-filled men. And this happens all the time behind the scenes, as well as all the practical, audiovisual, technical things within the church, many other things besides that. It's unseen because all those things I mentioned, you don't see people doing most of the time, and deeply unglamorous. It does involve a degree of delegation and oversight of other people. We, we cannot believe that those seven men in uh, Jerusalem in the first century in Acts 6 were single-handedly making bacon sandwiches for 500 widows. Right? That's not, that's not the, a plausible scenario. What they were actually doing was overseeing a distribution system which had gone wrong. And it's a fascinating and important aspect of diaconal ministry to actually draw out from other people in the church, perhaps younger men and women, um, uh, the gifts that God has given them 
because all of us have gifts with which we may serve one another. And deacons need to be not the kind of guy, oh, I want to be at the center of attention all the time, but the guy, the guy who can help other people, mentor other people, help them to grow up and develop those gifts for the benefit of everybody. The qualifications we started to see, there were just three that we looked at. Good repute, full of the spirit, uh, and of wisdom. Uh, they need to be morally above reproach. And we'll look at this again a bit later, obviously, but good repute... Is it indicates some something about that? It's not plausible that any charge of um, serious ungodliness could be levelled against this man by anybody. Everyone just knows. Even people who don't like him, who aren't believers, know this man or these men to be upright men within the community, and they secretly admire him. That's the kind of character we're talking about. And I gave you my favorite illustration of the kind of person we're looking for. Um, I call them take-the-wheel guys. It's the sort of person where, you know, if you, if you imagine a scenario where you, you just have to leave, if I imagine a scenario in, in a church context where I just have to go, or where I can't go to deal with some crisis, whatever it is, uh, practical, pastoral, it's a hospital visit, there's something which requires sensitivity, there's something, you know, the roof has blown off the church and somebody needs to go around at, you know, six in the morning to try and, you know, find a way of cleaning the water out of the sanctuary so that we can worship there at 11. You know, the kinds of things where you, just, you can just say to a guy, hey, listen, could you go and sort this out? I can't make it. And he's like, yes, sir. Thank you, pastor. I'll do it. And it's taking responsibility as distinct from saying, there's a difference between saying I'll do the job and I'll take responsibility to do the job. The person who says, I'll do the job, when he can't do it, just calls you to let you know. Hey, sorry, I couldn't make it today. It's not the same as somebody who says, hey, pastor, I couldn't make it today, but I hope it's okay. I asked Justin to do it, and he's going to fill in for me. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Don't call me at 20 to 11 on a Sunday morning to say your printer's broken and you can't print the orders of worship. actually happened to me once. Not at 20 to 11. Right? by somebody well-meaning, but who didn't really understand this stuff, okay? So that's what we're talking about. Now, this week, I'm going to talk about the qualifications for the deacon himself in a little more detail. Next week, we're going to talk about the um, family uh, qualifications, the qualifications that relate to a deacon's wife. It's really interesting that there are some significant um, and detailed requirements that the wife of a prospective deacon must uh, fulfill. Uh, and there are some important reasons for that. But we're not going to talk about that this week. I'm just going to go through um, the first portion of 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. And on your handouts there, I've actually just broken it out just to highlight. Really, there are six requirements. I'm going to talk about them a little bit in turn. Then we'll pause. And if you've got questions on the way through, of course, just stick a hand in the air. And then, as I indicated, I've got some... Uh, what I hope be illuminating and probably maybe challenging questions to get you guys to work on uh, uh, in the s- second part of the evening. Then we'll come back together and discuss that. So all happy? Yeah? Well, it was <laughs> one brief aside. This was interesting last week. Um, I think it was, out of all the Bible studies I've ever done at All Saints, it was the one in which there were the fewest questions last week. Like Normally in Bible study, I, I, I get you know, three minutes in and there's already three hands up on the front row. I'm like, we're never going to get anywhere tonight. Uh, and I, I was wondering about why that was. I think partly 
Well, I think it's a good sign, actually, for two reasons. Partly, I, I think it probably indicates the sense of um, purposefulness with which you guys are coming. It's like, I'm here to try and figure this stuff out. Um, this is quite challenging. I need to think about this. Rather than, I've got a dumb question. <laughs> and, and that's partly related, of course, to the second issue. It is intriguing um, that the very first qualification for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3.8 is dignified. And a dignified man doesn't just always ask dumb questions the whole time. Stick his hand up, and, you know, halfway through the first thing you're saying. And so I was, I was musing to myself and thinking, actually, it was... I, I nearly ended the Bible study 15 minutes early. I'm glad I didn't. Um, I'm kind of encouraged that I... We, we all witnessed what I, I think was a spirit of a kind of holy seriousness about this issue. And I'm, I thank God for that. That said, I do think it would be great if we can uh, share some thoughts that we may have, particularly later on this evening, in response to some of the questions I've got for you. So we'll see if that stimulates any conversation. All right, all happy so far? If you just jump in to First Timothy 3. Okay, after having said that, nobody's going to say anything ever again. All right. Okay, so 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, a a brief note about the context. This is the first of two canonical letters that we have from Paul the Apostle to his younger associate, Timothy. Um, My true child in the faith, 1 Timothy Timothy 2, and he indicates um, uh, elsewhere, so 1 Timothy um, uh, 4, verse um, 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. It uh, indicates he was a younger man, an apprentice, you might say, um, but a, a minister of the gospel, uh, uh, gifted as a speaker and as, as a pastor, but in need of guidance and wisdom, and particularly guidance and wisdom as he seeks to figure out what to do about the need of the growing first century church for leadership, elders and deacons. Who should I appoint as a deacon? Who should I appoint as an elder? What do I do, Paul? And so Paul says, okay, here are some things to look out for. Elders first at the first half of this chapter, then second, he talks about the requirements for deacons. Verse 8. Deacons likewise must be, and there follow then six specific qualifications which I want to look at this evening. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's okay to be addicted to a bit of wine, right? That means we'll come to that in a minute. I'm only addicted to two glasses and like, anyway, no, it's not. Uh, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then I'll read the rest just so you know where we're going next week. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And ladies, I would encourage you to reflect on that, particularly in preparation for next week, as we'll be looking at it in some detail. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me make some brief comments um, about verses 8 to 10, really. First... Notice, Paul 
just talks about deacons as though it is by this point, somewhat later in the New Testament period, later than Acts 6, as by this point, it's understood that there is this office called the office of deacon, which has certain requirements attached to it. We noticed last week that the term deacon, the formal noun, is not used in Acts 6. The verb is used, but it's used of serving tables, deaconing tables, and also deaconing the word and prayer. There isn't, at least there, mention of a, an office that we all know exists. But here there is. It's like Paul doesn't have to say now, uh, there ought to be three offices in the church, uh, minister of the gospel, uh, ruling elder or ruler, and deacon. Now, the qualifications are as follows. He, he can assume that it is known that there ought to be these offices and that deacons are one of them. Um, that's sometimes hard to get your head around because the term is used quite fluidly. The term deacon or the, the cognate verb is used just informally to mean a servant in many different contexts. So we might say there are lowercase d deacons. All of us are to be um, Mark 10. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be the least and the deacon of all. Mark 10, 43, I think. Jesus is called a deacon by Paul the Apostle. Epaphras is called uh, a deacon of Christ. Paul calls himself a deacon of the gospel and a deacon of the new covenant. It's often translated minister or something like that, but the word is diakonos. Similarly, household servants called deacons. Um, diakonos can just mean like the guy who works for you, who, like your butler or something, if you're wealthy enough in the first century to afford one. And so sometimes people think, well, it's ju- it just is a general term that means servant or being servant-hearted. And it's true it can mean that. But I think given the usage here, and especially in Philippians 1.1, if you just glance at Philippians 1.1, just, so you, just to persuade you, if there's any doubt. Um, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. That Timothy is the Timothy that First Timothy is written to. Okay. So, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus in Philippians 1.1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. You can see, again, very plainly, can't you, the term deacon there is used in a way which indicates it's a distinct office within the church. Overseer, uh, episkopos, from which we get episcopal or episcopalian, sometimes translated bishop, it's probably equivalent to presbyteros, from which we get elder. Elders and overseers are probably um, synonymous terms in the New Testament, almost certainly, I think. But here, deacon is used of an office, that not all believers have, because it's all the saints, oh, and together with the elders and deacons who are mentioned specifically, the overseers and deacons, you with me? So distinguish in your minds then, there is the lowercase d, deacon, we're all to be deacons of Christ, deacons of one another, deacon-hearted, but then there is this office for which certain qualifications are attached, and they're listed here in 1 Timothy 3. So, what are those qualifications? Let me go through them all, one at a time. And this is just, it, absolutely, it fascinates me that the first one on the list, deacons likewise must be dignified. There was some blogosphere activity recently 
apparently somebody told me about, about um, gravitas. Uh, young men being encouraged to cultivate gravitas, which made me smile, really. Like, gravitas is something that you can cultivate. No, you don't cultivate gravitas. Not directly. What you do is you learn to behave in a certain cluster of ways. And in consequence of that, gravitas is what other people impute to you or or recognize in you. To, To seek to cultivate gravitas just makes a young man pompous. Dignity is something which is the cluster of virtues, which is like... Well, you, you sometimes see it, particularly in older men. I've got a question for you about that in maybe a few minutes. Um, but it's interesting to see how the term is used elsewhere in Scripture, and this gives us a sense of what's going on with the term. The Greek term uh, is the word semnos. Um, it's used in... Uh, pardon me. Proverbs 8.6 in the Greek, one of the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, where Lady Wisdom is personified, wonderful passage in Proverbs 8, and Lady Wisdom says, hear, for I will speak noble things. And literally the word is semna, dignified things. Lady Wisdom speaks dignified things. And from my lips will come what is right. So clearly it has at least some connection with what one might speak, perhaps, in Proverbs 8 at least. In Philippians 8, that familiar list of um, what what we're supposed to think about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, your Bible translations say, well, it's literally dignified. Whatever is dignified, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... Anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And we recognize in lists like that, don't we, that we don't have a disconnected set of random virtues. They all actually inform and support and, in, and uh, define, in a sense, one another. So all of those terms are mutually reinforcing. A man of dignity, or a woman of dignity for that matter, is somebody who is true and just and pure and commendable and worthy of praise and, that, and they think about those things and that makes them sumnos honourable, dignified it's striking in Titus 2, I mentioned the older men thing, Titus 2 too, Paul goes through like younger men, older men, um, younger women older women um, not necessarily in that order um, older men he says are to be sober minded dignified Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And that's a reminder that um, dignity does not come automatically with age. It's more painful when it's absent in an older man. We don't expect an eight-year-old to be particularly dignified. But if you have an 80-year-old who can't keep his mouth shut on Twitter, just to take a purely random example... Um, it's just somehow really unseemly because you think really by now you should have got there. But it needs to be cultivated and Paul therefore exhorts the older men to behave in this, in this dignified way. I was chewing this over and um, my mind was taken back to some 
uh, of my, I used to read a fair amount of Puritan authors, and some Puritans would talk about a kind of holy seriousness. And I, they didn't mean by that a kind of glumness or a lack of sense of humor, but a sort of dispositional sobriety. The sort of person who, I've mentioned this analogy before, when, some people, when they join a conversation, the conversation immediately takes a turn in a more trivial or maybe salacious or gossipy direction. Other men join a conversation, and all the other men sort of stand up a bit straighter and start behaving themselves. That's what we're talking about. Dignity. Uh, I, I wanted to give an illustration of this. And this is not designed to be provocative, okay? Genuinely not. But I think it's just such a wonderful illustration of, of what I'm talking about. Um, in part because it illustrates what, something we've lost as a culture. We used to be able to look to uh, those in positions of significant public prominence. And whatever you thought of them as people, in terms of their politics, you would find dignity there. Like You, you might not like George Washington or James Madison or Abraham Lincoln's politics... But read what those men said and read about how they behaved. You see they're men of dignity, yes? Do you remember the, um, the 2008 presidential election campaign? You remember that? So Barack Obama won. Do you remember who is, is the opposition um, candidate was? Yeah, John McCain, the late senator John McCain. And, and there was this fascinating moment. I don't know whether you remember it. I actually watched it uh, not long ago. And when I watched it again this afternoon, just to make sure I got it right, when he was at one of his own campaign rallies, this was three weeks before election day. Uh, he's at one of his own campaign rallies. And it's one of those times where, you know, the, the, um, the organisers cross their fingers and pass the microphone out to people in the crowd. <laughs> and the microphone got passed to this one lady. And with her voice sort of trembling and clearly agitated, she said, and I quote, this is what she said, I can't trust Obama. I've read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. And do you remember, this was all in the, in the context of the birth of controversy, and was, was he genuinely born in Hawaii, or was he born in somewhere else, right? And it's just fascinating. You look at the video, just watch John McCain's face. Now, just think what's going through his head at this time. Like, this is three weeks to go. Somebody who represents a large slice of my, consist- my constituency has just tossed me the mother of all softballs, right? And I could whack this clean out of the park and find myself on every conservative talk show and stoke all those conspiracy theories and make sure I get that wing of my party out to vote for me, right? Remember what he said? He, he shook his head and he said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a decent family man, a citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is about. Now, I ask you, is it remotely conceivable that 
well, let's not belabor the point. Otherwise, we're going to start talking about politics, and we don't want to talk about politics. But can you see? That was 15 years ago. 15 years. Long time in politics. Long time in public life. And it wasn't so remarkable. It will be remarkable now. It, the, uh, earlier, a, a man had said, and this was just in the immediately preceding question, a man had said, we're scared. A man in the crowd with a microphone. We're scared of an Obama presidency. McCain said, I have to tell you, he's a decent person. A person you don't have to be scared of as president of the United States. Now, now you might disagree with Senator McCain at that point. You, you might not like his flavour of republicanism. You might have been frustrated after eight years of Obama presidency. All those things, I get it, I get it, I get it. But can you see the point I'm making? There was in Senator McCain's response no opportunism, no accepting the invitation to scrape the bottom of the political barrel for personal gain. He's a man of dignity. He saw speech as a way of conveying what is true, not just a means to create a certain effect. And whatever you thought of him, I, I don't know, I, I'll speak personally, I, I thought he comported himself remarkably as a leader. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. It makes me makes me wonder, really, whether the measure of the dignity of a society could be what its what its elders are like, what its older men and women are like. the The Greek term for elder, um, as in church elder, like Elder Capone and Elder Douglas, is literally old man. And it's just fascinating. The same in Hebrew, zakain means old one, old guy. And it's just fascinating that in that world, the, the technical term used to describe somebody who is worthy of respect as, and, and able and qualified to lead a congregation of the people of God was just the term for an old man. You just find yourself an old man. As, as though you should be able to make the assumption that when you get to a certain age, you behave in a certain way. And as that is lost that, and I wonder if that's a measure of our immaturity as a people. Dignified. Uh, second, let's be a bit, bit quicker through some of these. You got a question? Sorry, Carl, yeah, hit me. Yeah. Um, just taking the word dignified as a dictionary. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, I think you're right. So uh, you probably all heard the question, just for the sake of those of you at home. Is there a kind of cultural element according to which 
the, the nuts and bolts of dignified would vary from culture to culture. I think you've got to say yes, yeah, you, you would. Um, uh, at the very least, the context in which dignity would need to be shown would be different. So, for example, somebody who's prone to road rage is not dignified. But they didn't have road rage in first century Jerusalem. They didn't have cars. Maybe they had donkey rage. I don't know. What, you know, what are you... But you see what I'm saying? We, we, everyone is in different contexts in which the character traits that are required of us need to be demonstrated. So I think that's certainly, certainly the case, yeah. And, and I've got some questions for you later on just to kind of probe that a bit. Yeah, good question, thanks. Any other hands up at this stage? All right, let's press on. Um, not double-tongued. This is one of those wonderful word plays that works in English just as well as it does in Greek. Um, Somebody who says one thing to somebody and then another thing to somebody else. Again, such a person is not concerned for truth, but views speech rather as a means to accomplish some other goal. It's a form of manipulation, isn't it? Um, uh, there's a... I nearly brought the book with me, but I, didn't, I kind of didn't want to because there's an expletive in the title of the book. <laughs> uh, it's by Harry Frankfurt. Have you heard of Harry Frankfurt, philosopher? Um, Google, I'm not going to tell you the title of the book, but it, it's on something. And it's not truth, it's not lies, something else. Google books by Harry Frankfurt, philosopher, and, and you'll see what I mean. But he's talking in that book about what I think double-tongued is getting at. Somebody who's double-tongued, it's not necessarily that they're lying all the time. But they're not telling the truth all the time either. It's that truth is not the thing that matters to them when they're speaking. Go and listen to... Let's get political again. Go and listen to any senior political press conference. And listen really carefully to the disjunction between the question that is being asked and the answer that is being given. And note how little that the person taking questions cares about the truth. Like what the question is simply a a context into which they pour whatever their particular agenda that might be vaguely related to the subject of the question might be. I had the privilege once or twice of um, uh, speaking on the radio in the UK, and I think that the reason was because I managed to get in their database as a Calvinist, and they didn't have many Calvinists in Radio 4 <laughs> database. Uh, so a friend of mine recommended me once because he couldn't do an interview, and then they realised I was a kind of reformed Christian, and that meant I was you know, second on the list of two people. So anyway, I got called to do this a couple of times. So, so I called a friend of mine, and one of the programmes I did was called Beyond Belief, and uh, so I was debating these people. And I called a friend of mine and said, have you got any advice for me? And he said... When you're asked a question, don't answer the question. Don't say more than three sentences. Just make a statement that you want to make. I was like, what? I don't know how to speak like that. I don't know how to do that. But let me tell you, you can pretty soon learn it. You just... I thought, I, before I thought what I was doing, I'm like, well, here are my bullet points. Here are the things I want to say. <laughs> shuffle them into some kind of logical order. And you think, no, that's not, how to, that's not how to conduct yourself in public. Well, that's what I was advised to do 
on the couple of occasions I had the privilege of speaking on Radio 4. Third, not addicted to much wine. Wine is obviously good. Paul recommends that Timothy drink more of it because he's um, apparently gets ill frequently and wine is more likely to be disinfected by its alcohol content than the, the water that they drank in the first century. Jesus' first miracle was to produce several hundred gallons of the stuff. So it's not like wine is bad, but it's really interesting what happens with alcohol. It's always been clear to people what, happened, what happens when you drink alcohol, right? But now we, we actually know why alcohol has the effects that it has. So obviously it introduces uh, cognitive confusion, um, but it's, it's a bunch of subtle things as well. Um, it releases the feel-good hormone, uh, dopamine. When, you, when, when your alcohol level is rising, it releases the feel-good hormone. And as soon as your alcohol level stops rising, the dopamine level drops, and so you feel this craving for more. But what alcohol also does is it's a disinhibitor. It makes people lose their social inhibitions, makes them more free with their speech, and therefore it makes them less concerned about all the social pressure to restrain yourself including restraining yourself from drinking more. So it's like the ultimate slippery slope, yeah? But this is a a greased slippery slope, which gets more steep the further you go along it. If you have, I don't know how many it is for you, let's say two or three or four drinks, your capacity to control yourself and not have a fifth drink is much less than your capacity was to have controlled yourself and not have had the second. And so... Not addicted to much wine is, a, is like a, a really uh, high-pressure stress test of one's self-control. Self-control. A- ability to know yourself, um, to restrain yourself from short-term pleasure because you regard the likely outcome of that as ungodly. That's what this is getting at along with, obviously, a bunch of um, fairly terrible uh, social effects of having people staggering around drunk all the time if they're church officers. Number four, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, Our deacons count the offering every week, which includes quite large amounts of cash. I'll say no more about that. Uh, That was not just like a New Testament invention, of course. That was part of the Levitical ministry under the Old Covenant, the administration and care of not just um, tithes from the people, but also um, uh, the distribution to the poor was managed by the the Levites. But there's more subtle things than that. I mean, it's not just having your hand in the offering plate. It's, you know, um, deacons have a fund which they, or saints, which they can disperse to people in case of financial need. Now, they're not likely to disperse it directly to themselves. Nobody would be that stupid. I mean, like, what are you going to do, write a check to yourself and then try and explain that to our treasurer? I don't think so. But there's all kinds of ways in which um, uh, ungodly motives could drive who you're giving the funds to. Or even just in the award of contracts for business. You know, there's so much cronyism, isn't there, in public life. And... Uh, a board of deacons with a responsibility potentially for, for assigning contracts worth tens of thousands of dollars every year need to be men of absolute irreproachable financial probity. Like you, you would trust this guy with your bank account if you never saw another bank statement. 
Number five, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, the mystery of the faith, of course, that's it's, um, a Pauline term, the mystery. It's found in Ephesians especially, but also elsewhere. It refers to the, the, what Paul calls the secret that was kept hidden for ages past and has now been revealed um, through the apostles and prophets of the new covenant that Jews and Gentiles are now united in Christ. There's one new community of people. So the mystery really is the gospel. The reason it's called a mystery was because it was veiled in former ages and has now been unveiled before the church in Christ by the Spirit. So the, the mystery of the gospel is a way of just talking... There are reasons why he uses that term, but it's basically talking about the, the central tenets of our faith. And the faith very frequently in the New Testament has both an objective and a subjective character. So it can be the faith once delivered to the saints, like the things we believe. It could also be our subjective faith or faithfulness. So somebody who holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, it means that if you ask them, uh, do you believe the creed? They say yes, and they mean it. There's no kind of... Yes, but I don't really believe the bit about whatever it is. You know, they're, not, they're not hiding something with a clear conscience. And also then, if you ask them, are you faithful to Jesus subjectively? And they say yes, they're not lying. They are subjectively living a life of faithfulness as well as objectively, they do genuinely believe the things they say they believe. Are you with me? With a clear conscience. All these things are connected, like this is the man of his word, he speaks the truth, not double-tongued, and so on. And then finally, sixth, let me say a word about this, verse 10. Let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, this is really intriguing. Um, Let them also be tested first. It's, It's not so evident that such a requirement of prior testing exists for pastors and ministers of the gospel and elders. Um, In one sense, ministers of the gospel, they are tested because, and and so are elders, They're, they're tested, they're examined in a sense. But probably what's distinctive about the diaconal office here is a couple of things. It seems quite likely that the diaconal office is part of the testing ground for eldership. And indeed, um, there's a case to be made, I won't go into it here, for saying that, that deacons are kind of, among other things, they're trainee elders. Now, that wouldn't mean that all deacons become elders, but it's interesting that there's no requirement for elders to be tested first. Well, why not? Well, the assumption might be that they've been deacons already. But there's, nothing, there's no office, so to speak, prior to diaconal ministry that a man could be tested in. And so that's why then Paul says, well, you've got to test the deacons first, and then they are admitted as deacons. Then you can see the assumption would be if, they've, if they served well as deacons and proved themselves faithful, then perhaps if they're appropriately gifted, they might be ordained as elders afterwards. Are you with me? So this is the testing ground before this, um, this office of deacon. Now, some churches will um, actually initiate a formal program of deacon training. Uh, Trinity Reformed Church in Moscow, I talked to their pastor, one of their pastors, Josh Apple, about this. They've actually got 
trainee deacons. And everybody knows who they are, and there's this kind of office of trainee deacon, um, and there's a kind of program of things for them to, to go through. And I think, actually, there's some wisdom in that. Um, here at All Saints, we've, we've not decided at the present time to have a kind of formal um, office like that. It, um, we, we're doing something similar, but a little bit more informally. Uh, let me explain what, what I have in mind. Uh, all of you are here because I've said, Yo, we need some deacons. Right? In, normally in a slightly more English accent than that. And so I hope you are seeing this as deacon training. Um, there is a learning what the requirements are element to training as a deacon. In a sense, then, we do have this kind of informal setting. But that's not the only thing we do. Secondly, um, one of the principles that the testing period implies is that you appoint as deacons men who are already doing it. That is to say, guys who are already taking the initiative to offer themselves as servants in appropriate ways and discharging that responsibility really well. It's like they are doing lowercase d deacon work really, really faithfully and proving themselves adept and uh, competent and mature and also that they've got the time to be considered as potential uppercase D deacon candidates. Are you with me? So if somebody were... I'm not, if, I give a, if, you give, if I give you a concrete example, you, you'll know who I'm talking about. So I'm not gonna, you, you think, think of things in the church that men do regularly and consistently, and those men are not deacons. Think for five seconds. Thank you. Right? Now, there are many other things you don't know about. And one of the things that Pastor Shaw is going to do is to scoot round um, some of you, maybe all of you, in the fullness of time, and say, hey, um, we've got some stuff needs doing. We, got, we need to put this fence outside the front of the church Saturday morning. You want anybody up for that? Because um, the city won't let us resurface the parking lot until we put a fence around those massive trees to protect them, or whatever. Anyway, so I mean, and a bunch of you guys came and did that. It's great. And it's, it's, it's not like a test. It's not testing in that sense. You know, how did you measure up? Did you knock the posts in straight? You know, that, it's not, that's not what we're doing. But what we're wanting to do is, it, it's actually a, that's part of what being a deacon involves, that kind of ministry. And guys who are up for that will show they're up for it by doing it. So don't be surprised, and some of you I've actually talked to about this already, if... If somebody pings you an email, one of the pastors, myself, or one of the other pastors, perhaps, pings you an email and says, hey, would you be up for some more opportunities to serve over the next few months or a couple of years if they were put your way? And if you're not able to do it, don't worry. Like, if, like we just had our second child, really sorry. It's, it's just hectic at the moment. That's completely fine. But equally, if that changes, or if you've not been asked, just come and offer your services. Go talk to Pastor Shaw. When he comes back from Summer Sanctus, give him an inbox with 100 emails in it. Come on, let's do it. See if we can make triple figures. So that with people offering to help, it'd be great. Because you're giving yourselves an opportunity to be tested. To prove, the, in a sense, to, to... It's almost the best psychological test for a great deacon is to say, look, would you be willing to do all this hard work 
but without the badge. If you were never ordained as a deacon, how would you feel about serving regularly, consistently, multiple hours a week for the next 40 years? to serve the body of Christ as we seek to grow together and take the opportunities God has given us. And if you're a man who would say, you know what, I, yeah, I, Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve, yes, sir, I'd happily do that. That is just great. And Jesus notices, and your pastors aren't so thick that we wouldn't notice as well. So, you know. But the, the, almost the emotional test is, do, do you want the badge? Or do you just want to serve? And what deacon means is servant. Okay, I'm going to pause. Uh, I do have um, a couple of theological connections, but I'm going to spare them. We'll talk about them another time. What I really want to spend the rest of our time doing, after any questions you might have at this point, is going through some questions on the remainder of this handout. Let me pause, though. Any comments or questions you want to raise at this stage uh, from what we've looked at already? Kyle's asked something already that's helpful. Any other, any other input? Anything online? Uh, Justin, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the musterion, mystery of godliness. It's the same Greek word, yeah, like in English. Um, and it is, you're absolutely right, that is a summary of the gospel. Um, and of the gospel's fruits, you know, believed on in the world. But yeah, that's wonderful. All right. Now, don't be shy. It's okay. It's like, if you ask a question, you're not going to be in trouble for asking a question. If you've got any comments you want to make. Uh, yeah, as Natalie. About verse 12, yes, ma'am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Verse twelve: Husband of but one wife. Um, is that uh, not not a bigamist or polygamist, as in only one wife at the moment? Uh, does it mean something else? Does it forbid divorcees or people who who have been widowed and then remarried, or does it mean that a single man who's never married is disqualified? And that's that's actually a um, there's a Roman Catholic doctrine of priestly celibacy, not for deacons so much, but for priests. So I will talk about this more next week, but I'll give you a quick one-line summary. Um, The phrase is one woman man. And I think obviously that would disqualify somebody who's sexually unfaithful, like a polygamist. In some cases, uh, an at-fault divorcee would likely be disqualified. But a, a person who'd been widowed and then remarried... I mean, Paul recommends that young women who are widowed remarry. He could hardly then make that a disqualifier. He thinks that's a godly thing for them to do. So I don't see how that could be a disqualifier. The really tricky question, actually, in our context is most likely to be... If you've got a single man, uh, let's say he's 40 years old, and he seems to meet all the other qualifications, but he's never married, would he be disqualified for that reason? And uh, my own inclination is to say 
he wouldn't be disqualified, but it would just be harder for him to demonstrate the second half of verse 12, managing his children and his own household well. It would be harder for him to demonstrate that because he wasn't in a context where he could do it. So now if I'm right about that, what that would mean is that theoretically such a man could display the characteristics that make a man a good manager of his household, but in some other context. Yeah? But it would just be harder for him to do that, and it would be harder for that to be appraised. Um, whereas if you see a guy and his house is just in order and, uh, and his children are faithful and so on and so forth, then it's like you've got um, something else you can measure, quote-unquote, about him, which you don't have in the case of a single guy. Um, also, not having a wife... On, on certain readings of the first half of verse 12... Sorry, um... Uh, sorry, certain readings of verse 11, speaking of their wives, I think that's about deacons' wives. But one way of taking that is to say that um, it's likely that a deacon's wife might, to a certain degree, share in his ministry. Because it's not a pastoral ministry. It's a ministry of service in which um, there isn't... uh, There aren't quite the restrictions on like, obviously a woman can't preach Nicole can't help me by being a great by being a preacher but a deacon's wife could certainly help him in all kinds of ways in his diaconal ministry if you see what I'm saying um, so a guy who's not married wouldn't have that yeah so there's, there's a bunch of complexity there but I don't think it is laying down a kind of ironclad requirement that a deacon must be married. And if he's not, he's not qualified. I think it's more that the assumption in the first century was that he would be. Um, and that's the basis on which Paul is proceeding. Paul himself wasn't married. So I think that's... Yeah, all right, thank you. Any other thoughts? We will look at that a bit, bit next week when I talk to the, the ladies specifically. All right. Okay, so look, here's what I want to do. And I think I know you all well enough to to be confident you'll take this in the right way. Turn, if you would, to page two. And page two and three, if you're at home, this is on your PDF. And I hope that the way that the PDF appeared means that when you scroll down, it doesn't do that annoying thing that you turn your phone through 90 degrees and the document flips through 90 degrees as well, so you still can't read it. I don't know what to do to help you with that. But um, if you can look at this, there are some questions for reflection. And... These questions are designed to interrogate the six character qualifications that we've just been talking about. They are roughly in order. They roughly sort of track. There are 15 questions, I believe. Is that right? Did I do 15? Yeah. There are 15 questions which roughly track those six character qualifications. And what I'd like you to do, this feels like school, right? which it is, a bit like school, you've got a pen, I would love for you to answer those questions. Are you guilty of any behaviour over the past three years that would cause significant reproach to Christ or his church if it were made public? Do you believe you have a reputation for integrity and hard work among others, both inside and outside the church? If so, what have you done to earn this reputation? No, that's first two. Go, go through them all. The middle column is your answer. 
And there'll be one or two points, or maybe a few more than that, at which you think, yeah, I, I wish I could give a more adequate answer than that. And so that's what the third column is for. The third column is headed, what steps could you take that might enable you to give a more exemplary answer this time next year? You see what we're doing? This is a manifesto for you to take away from this evening, for you to strive to grow in the areas where you might helpfully focus your attention. So just to give me one example, let's imagine question four. Would others say that you tend to be judicious and considered in what you say or that you are prone to overreaction and extreme responses? Suppose the answer to that is, Ashley, yeah, I do tend to overstate. I catastrophize everything. And um, as soon as I hear something on um, the Bongino report, I'm straight on Twitter to give the word, world my opinion. And I always go to the culture war section first. You know, maybe that's your answer in the middle column of question four. Well, what are you going to do about that? Like, nothing is not an option. We need deacons, remember? Let's not have the kind of coyness of, oh, I could never do this. It's a... Far too great an office for me, I can go home. No, like you, we might need you in five years' time to be able to give a better answer to that question. And so that's what, what steps could you take that might enable you to do so? That's what the third column is for. You might not fill in every box in the third column. That's fine. But I hope you can at least sketch some answers in the second column and maybe in the third. Now... If you want, you can do this on your own. If you're married and with your wife or husband, I encourage you to do it together. And ladies, um, it's about your husbands if you're married in the first instance. Now, if you're ladies, you're not married, um, uh, Mrs. Shaw and uh, younger ladies here, obviously there are kind of analogues to this for women. It's not great for women to be mouthing off all the time and constantly being provocative and not tithing and everything else that's all listed here. So you could just talk through it with each other if you'd prefer or on your own if you'd like to. You with me? And if you're a single guy and you want to do it on your own, go ahead. If you want to get together with a bunch of other single guys, then just go and find some. There are a crowd of you down the front here. You're fine. You with me? You all know what you're doing. You've got 10 minutes to do this questionnaire, 15 questions. You have to work hard, work fast. Those of you who are at home, please don't just go and make a cup of tea or pour yourself a glass of wine Um, and when you've done this keep it because one of your pastors might be on your case in two or three months time to go through it with you seriously because we really want to do this job well so off you go and I'll call us back to order in about 10 minutes time thank you well hello everybody as I sit here now talking to you it is Thursday morning Bible study was last night, of course, and you have just reached the point in the recording where we had a pause of about 10 minutes while those who were attending went off to discuss those 15 questions that I'd spoken about. I realise, of course, that I didn't actually read out all 15 of those questions, and that was for reasons of time. Everyone who was at Bible study, whether at home or uh, in the church was able to just read them for themselves. I didn't want to waste time for everybody, but I know that some of you 
maybe reading the, uh, listening to this, pardon me, on a podcast or you're driving along in the car or something like that and you're thinking, oh, what are those 15 questions? Uh, they are actually going to be in, in the, the handout. I'm going to put the handout online as well so that if you are able to, you can download it um, and look at them for yourself, read through them, take time to do so. But I thought just for the sake of those who are restricted to audio only at this time, I would just read through the questions now. I'll insert this into the recording at this point at which you're now hearing it. And then we're going to skip back to Wednesday night Bible study when I've gone through these questions and I make some final comments and um, just wrap up uh, last night's Bible study. So then, without further ado, these are those questions for reflection where I asked all those present, and actually I did this as well with my wife, Nicole, um, but I asked all those present to consider how they would answer them and then also to consider what steps they could take that might enable them to give a more exemplary answer this time next year in cases where they felt that the answer that they were able to give at the present time uh, revealed some uh, shortcomings or immaturity or um, challenges of uh, ungodliness that really uh, they need to get over. So here goes, those 15 questions. Number one, are you guilty of any behaviour over the past three years that would cause significant reproach to Christ or his church if it were made public? Question two, do you believe you have a reputation for integrity and hard work among others, both inside and outside the church? If so, what have you done to earn this reputation? Number three, does your wife respect you? Does she ever express justified exasperation with you? If so, why? Question four, would others say that you tend to be judicious and considered in what you say, or that you are prone to overreaction and extreme responses? Five, are there any areas of life in which you lack self-control, for example, consumption of food or alcohol, tobacco usage, control of your temper, driving habits, etc. Question six, have there been any occasions in the last year when you've woken up in the morning thinking that you probably drank a little too much the night before? Over the page here, pardon the rustling of the pages. Number seven, do you ever feel you need, quote unquote, an alcoholic drink to unwind after work? Eight, do you tithe? Nine, do you pay all your taxes? Question 10, how often do you think about how you could acquire more money and in what contexts? 11, do you use credit cards? If so, do you pay them off in full each month or do you leave a balance outstanding on which interest, interest is charged? Question 12, Do you hold unreservedly to the central tenets of our faith as a reformed evangelical church? Question 13. What steps are you taking regularly to grow in your understanding of scripture, theology and other aspects of Christian teaching? 14. Do you hold to any unusual theological views that might raise eyebrows within our congregation or the CREC as a whole? And finally, question 15. In what ways are you active in serving within the church? How would you respond if you were asked to take on significant new responsibilities? So those are the questions I asked uh, the people at Bible study to think about. Those are questions you might like to think about. As I said, they will be uh, in the handout, which I will put as a PDF on the church website at the point where you're able to download this. If you go to allsaintskirk.com, click resources, and then Wednesday night Bible study, you should be able to find this. And with that, 
I'll bid you farewell from me on Thursday morning and you can go straight back to the closing comments from Wednesday night Bible study last night. God bless and bye for now. Okay everybody, I'm conscious that um, many of you won't have finished. It's extremely encouraging to see a lot of these uh, sheets being scribbled on and um, I encourage you to carry on with that. It's probably not the best use of our time together here as a group to spend um, much longer on it. It's almost quarter past. But I hope that, and this was deliberate, hope that getting started on it will prompt you either as an individual or as a couple to continue with it. Like Genuinely, it, you would be doing a tremendous service to the church as a couple if you were to sit down for an hour, I don't know, later tonight or later this week or next week or whatever, and just work through the rest of this. Um, whether somebody nominates you as a deacon in eight months' time or whether they nominate you as a deacon in ten years' time or never, we owe each other the most mature and faithful and godly versions of ourselves that by the grace of God we can cultivate. We, we are gifts to each other within the church. And I hope you found this appropriately probing of some specific areas which may indicate some spaces where you could focus your prayers and your uh, striving for godliness. You with me? Um, I, I've said this before. Just one final comment. Um, I had a couple of conversations in the last week or two about this, what feels like a tension between God's grace to us in giving us his spirit and equipping us to grow and strengthening us and blessing us and forgiving us for our failings and, and prompting faith and faithfulness in us. All, all that God does on the one hand and our striving for increased faithfulness and maturity on the other. You've heard me say before that those two things are, are not intention. Um, Paul says to the Philippian Christians, work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So they're not intention. But recently I, I did think there's another way of putting this which maybe may help some of you just to put more flesh on those bones. Consider it like this. All of the things that you do, the opportunities you have to strive towards increased maturity and faithfulness, all the things that are on the my actions side of the coin are themselves gifts of God. Just think about it like that. It's not that this is me and God is helping me behind the scenes and I've got to kind of marry those two sides together. But even the things that you think are you are a gift from God to you. you know, your wife this evening or your conscience tomorrow evening pressing upon you your answer to question three. Does she sometimes express justified exasperation with you? Right? That's a gift when she says that. That's a gift from God to you. So all of the stuff that prompts within us a thought of, I need to 
work out my salvation, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All of that stuff is God outworking us and graciously giving us those desires and opportunities to grow in faithfulness. Are you with me? So really, these, these two aspects of how we look at God's work in us, God's work and in us, I need to find ways of helping us all to draw those so much closer together and really to see them as the same thing viewed from two perspectives. When, try and view it from God's perspective. What does God see? God's, God upholds everything in the universe, including all your desires and all your strivings and all your actions, and he gives all those things to you as a gift. It's all him. And therefore it's you, which he is at work in. You with me? Right. So this wasn't, this wasn't a beat-up, in other words. This was, here's how God is going to be blessing you, maybe in the next few months or years, as you prepare to serve the church more and more in years to come. Happy? Good. All right, let's pray. And those of you at home as well, great to have you with us, and I hope it's been helpful for you. Let me pray, and we'll finish. Merciful Father, thank you for one another. Thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, and his younger associate, Timothy, whose interaction is uh, preserved here and providentially uh, inspired and written for our instruction. We pray that uh, you would equip us to put into practice what is said here for the sake of the glory of Christ in the church and for the good of the people in it. We pray, Father, there will be many, many people across this city who in years to come have reason to thank you for what you've done this evening in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. The Lord bless you. Uh, One quick favor to ask, if I might be so bold.